today uh, I want to talk about uh, the glorious fruits of justification. Um, Ruben knows, but I, 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 you may not know that I, I switched titles uh, midstream, uh, but I could have easily gone, gone with my first title, So Secure, uh, or se Secure Salvation in Christ. Um, and you'll see how that title also relates to today. You remember a couple weeks ago, I think uh, it was Chris Coe in his testimony, briefly, he was just kind of passed by, he said uh, as a child he had a security blanket. Um, he had something that uh, he took everywhere, um, even when his parents went gardening at the church, he carried that around. Um, I remember when I was a child, I had different things that um, I would uh, keep near me. Uh, remember clearly as a little child, having uh, two stuffed dogs. One was very raggedy. I don't know where it came from. Didn't have one eye. The button was gone. Um, and I used to uh, sleep with those uh, two dogs and it kept me uh, feeling safe for some reason um, when my uh, parents, after my parents would tuck me in. Well, in this world, it doesn't matter how old you are. It starts from a young age, but we live in a sense of uh, insecurity. And we're always looking for something that can make us feel safe, make us feel secure. In this world, uh, many of us and many people in the world don't know what tomorrow will bring. Um, in fact, uh, there are different things that occur in our life that definitely surprise us. And we thought that those things that were definitely uh, going to remain the same, they've changed. In the last year or so, in the economic uh, downfall of the United States, we've seen how uh, many of us have um, had some sort of anxiety over our jobs. We've seen how layoffs have occurred in various different areas and not knowing if we're going to have a job uh, tomorrow. Some of us uh, have become uh, sick or unhealthy or uh, things have occurred in our um, physical bodies that we did not expect and they have hindered us uh, in our uh, work, in our relationships, and even um, in our abilities to serve God. Um, we all know that the events of September 11th brought new insecurities to every person, uh, not only in the United States, but around the world, knowing that um, our future, uh, even the security of our nation, is not something that we can really take for granted at times. Well, fortunately, in the Bible, there is something that we can hold on to. God has given us his revelation. There is something that we can be secure in. Um, God being the faithful God, he's immutable. That's one of his attributes. He's unchanging. He is faithful to the end. If God promises something, those promises will remain true eternally. They're secure, lasting promises. Um, it's not wishful thinking, this hope that God gives us, but rather firm, guaranteed truth. I find it very hard for those who do not know Christ, uh, thinking about them and how you can live your life on such shaky ground and still remain uh, at ease.
Well, today I'd like to encourage you. Today I would like to encourage you with the Word of God for what um, God has given us and secured for us as Christians. Maybe today you need to be reminded in the midst of current situations or current struggles that you're facing. You need to be reminded of those things that God has promised to us in the midst of trials, in the midst of constant change, um, in your situation where you look down the road and you can't see the end, the light at the end of the tunnel. Today I would like to speak to you God's word on the eternal fruits of salvation. Um, I also want to talk to those who may not even know Christ today. Um, these words will be words that you need to carefully hear and understand because it tells the truth about your situation before God. And unfortunately, these securities that I'm about to go through through the um, book of Romans uh, are not secure for the unbeliever. So let's open up to the book of Romans today. And we're going to look through uh, Romans chapter 5, as Dale read for us earlier. Um, this has come out of uh, a couple weeks of meditation on this passage. Just was reading through Romans and stopped at Romans 5 and just um, started memorizing it and me meditating on these words. So there's a lot of deep truth here, and I pray that the Holy Spirit will allow me to uh, get the the good stuff out of it and really help you to understand these glorious truths as we look through this book. Well, let me just give you a brief out, uh, outline or background toward this book of Romans. Um, the book of Romans is also called uh, basically the gospel of God um, in, in its entirety. It basically is preaching the gospel message, sharing the gospel message to um, to the, the believers there, helping them understand the gospel there in Rome. Um, chapters 1 all the way down to chapter 3, verse 20, if you want to just keep this in mind, gives us the need for justification, the need for salvation. And then Paul goes on, and he gives not only, he doesn't leave you needy, but he gives you the way of justification through our Lord Jesus Christ, and it's by grace through faith in Jesus Christ that we appropriate eternal salvation. And up to this point, Paul has been expositing and leading up to uh, this way of salvation, this way of justification. Just a side note, before we um, enter this passage, you have to know exactly what justification is. And I've been using justification and salvation interchangeably. Justification is the term we use for that moment where um, we are declared righteous before God. Romans in the beginning, chapter 3, says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It's stating there's a need. We are sinners. We fall short of the glory of God. The way of salvation is through the death of Christ. And on the cross, he took on the wrath of God that we should have had. And there... It is a forensic uh, term, justification. It's like in the court of law, um, God has declared each person, each human, um, sinners, guilty. Your 
your uh, sentence is eternal punishment. It's hell. But what Christ has done by his death on the cross, um, he has said, no, I will take that penalty. I will take that punishment on myself. And this person is free to go. And when a believer trusts in the Lord Jesus Christ, he is declared righteous. It's like the gavel going down. You are now declared righteous, not guilty, because Christ has taken uh, your sins for you. And that's what the beauty of justification is. I would urge you to, if you haven't read the book of Romans, to go through that and understand that. Today I'm going to talk about, I um, mean, John is starting, I mean, Paul is starting with um, the results of this gift of justification. Justification is salvation. Salvation is justification. Salvation includes a little bit more than that, but justification is that time, point in time, where God has given us and declared us righteous before him. So, now in chapter 5, Paul begins to expound on the results or the consequences of one who is justified. One who was saved in Christ. He begins to describe the fruits of justification. And why do you think he would do this? Well, it's because and if you, haven't, if you didn't know this uh, today, you will soon find out there are glorious riches, treasures, fruit that uh, justification brings to the believer's life. And these results have ramifications on how we live today, on how we, we um, are considered by God in the past, and how we are to look forward to the future. They have definite uh, value for today. And these are the fruits. And it's not anything that we have been given, but they're fruits from that gift that God has given us. So let's look at the five glorious uh, fruits of justification. Five glorious truths. Today I'm going to simply ask you to consider these truths, to meditate on them, to try to grasp them. And I, I assure you, once you do, um, your life will be changed and you'll understand the fullness of this grace in which uh, God has given us. So let's look at um, the first fruit of justification. Verse 1 of chapter 5 says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's stop there. Paul begins here by saying, therefore, he is looking back to all that he has said in the previous chapters and saying, in lieu of all this I've said, in lieu of this justification by faith in which I have defined is in Christ and given by grace, we are going to have these things. He basically summarizes the first four um, chapters by saying, therefore, having been justified by faith. Um, having been is, is, is aorist, passive participle. What that means in the Greek is that it was a once for all, um, and it was, that is the nature of justification. It was once for all. It doesn't repeat over and over again. Justification was established at a past time, and now here are the fruits, the benefits of this justification. Let's look at 
um, letter A there, the first one, the first fruit of justification, this is um, a wonderful truth. The first one is we have peace with God. We have peace with God. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. What does Paul, Paul mean here by peace? Um, it's not the subjective sense of peace, like I'm at peace right now, or, you know, I, you know, I have, you know, like peace or something like that. But rather, what it's, it's talking about is, um, in, it's, if you look at the, the opposite word, the opposite word for this word of peace would be war, would be war. This term is not a subjective sense of God's peace. Even we as believers have that, and I'll talk about that later. But in this sense, it's talking about objective state. It's the state of the union. It's like the United States saying we are at peace, not at war, right now. Okay? So in this context, you may be saying, so who are the two sides who are at war? What, are the, what is the relationship that is in conflict? Well, the two sides that are at war are God and man. And in this context, he's talking about God and the Christian. Previously, the unbeliever um, was not at peace with God. In fact, he was at war with God. But now Paul is saying, the war is over. There, you are no longer enemies, but you have established peace through our Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe some uh, non-Christians, or maybe you're thinking, I was never at war with God, or I'm not at war with God now. I've never been at war with God. In fact, I like God. You know, God is good, you know. Um, some may see, say, I'm religious, I believe in God, I don't have anything against Him, I just don't believe in Jesus Christ. I have nothing against God, why should He have anything against me? I've never hurt Him, I don't see myself as an enemy of God, I don't actively engage at, um, you know, persecuting Christians or something like that. But, I, you know, why is God at war with me? I have nothing against Him. I'm not at war with God. The issue is, is not that, the issue is not that uh, you feel like you are at war with God or that you are actively going against God or any Christian, but rather the issue is the other side. God is at war with you. God is at war with you. You may say, I don't see myself fighting God. I don't do anything to fight God, but the point is not that you are not doing anything against God. The point is that God is your enemy. He is your enemy. He considers you an enemy if you are without Christ. Why? Because God is at war with every sinner, every unredeemed sinner. God is the enemy of the sinner. God is the enemy of sin. God is the enemy of Satan. And by the way, you can't stand in a neutral ground. You're either in Christ and at peace with God, or you're at war with God, an enemy of God. There's no like safety zone, there's no Switzerland where you can go and be in a neutral zone. You're either for God 
or you are against God. And it's very, very important for those of you who do not know Christ to understand that's your situation. Whether you believe it or not, that's what God uh, considers you, an enemy. Romans 1.18 says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who supp suppress the truth in unrighteousness. You see, it says there that God is at war with the ungodly and the unrighteous, and all those who are not redeemed in Christ are still in sin. They are sinners. And God um, has in store for them wrath. Ephesians 5, 6. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. The sons of disobedience. The issue is, is that God is at war with the wicked. The Bible calls them children of wrath. They have, it's like, um, the scope is pointed at you. You are about to be the target of God's wrath. And that is every situation that the unregenerate, the unsaved uh, sinner is in. But going back to now peace here. Peace with God. Now with that background, do you understand a little bit more what it means to be at peace with God? Not only the, is the unbeliever at war with God, but he's in a war that he cannot possibly win. You can't win it. Your, your destiny is set. Just like Satan's destiny is set, so are every um, sinner without Christ. Their destiny is set, and that destiny is hell, eternal punishment. So now we understand that through Christ, through God's work, through God's initiative, he has set up peace with himself through, his, through the Lord Jesus Christ. It isn't something that we did or we have it from our end. It's that something satisfied God's wrath. And what was that? That was the work of Christ on the cross. On the cross, he took the sins of all men and cast them upon himself. He took the wrath of God, the punishment that sh should have been ours, and he took it on himself. And now we have peace with God, and God was appeased. Colossians 1, 20 through 22. And through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross, through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven, and although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you, present before him, holy and blameless and beyond reproach. A glorious truth. We were once children of wrath, but now Christians are children of God. We are at peace through our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, I don't think I understand that fully, understood that fully when I was an unbeliever, um, that God was my enemy. But that is the truth, and that's the truth we need to understand. And that makes this peace with God all the more 
glorious. Now we are at peace with the God who was once our enemy. So the first thing is peace with God. Secondly, now let's go on here. Verse 2. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. The second point is, is that we have access to grace in which we stand. We have access to grace in which we stand. Grace, as I already said earlier, is God's free, unmerited favor, his undeserved, unsolicited, unconditional love. Um, but grace probably here has that sense, but it also has another sense of an unalterable state of peace resulting from justification. And I'll, I'll explain why I think that is. It's because there are two verbs here in relation to grace. Look at verse 2. The first verb or the verbal phrase is, we have obtained our introduction. We have obtained our introduction. The NIV translates the Greek access. Um, I think that's a, a good term, but I think introduction has a, a good sense into it as well because introduction is a, has a sense of unfitness to enter and the need for someone to bring us in. You're a newcomer at this church, but you come with a friend. They introduce you to the body of Christ. Or they, they introduce you to the church. Um, a better illustration is a sense of a person being brought into a king's audience chamber to be presented to him. He has a benefactor who's bringing him, bringing uh, that person into the courtroom in which uh, he is presenting this person to the king. We have received our introduction. We have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace. It has a sense of a person being brought into the king's chamber. And that person was Jesus Christ bringing us into God, the king's chamber, where we have no place, shouldn't be there. The only way we can get in is if someone had brought us. Jesus Christ was the one who brought us. The second verb is grace in which we stand. The verb stand there. This sense has a sense of continued access. Continued access. It's not an occasional audience with the king, or it's not a one-time introduction, but rather it's the privilege, now that you've been introduced, you have the privilege of remaining in that palace, in that temple forever. Continued access. Grace in which we stand. That is where we stand. Now, we are standing by grace because if we didn't have that grace to stand on, we would not be able to stand before the king, before God. And those are the sense, that's the sense of, uh, of access and also standing on grace. To the Jew, giving you a context here, this, these words were unbelievable. These words were unthinkable. The Old Testament um, declares that uh, 
a man could only go so far in approaching God. To the Jew, God was unapproachable. They were astonished to hear these words of Paul. To them, God is utterly holy, he's unapproachable, and man does not have access to God. You remember the tabernacle or the temple of the Old Testament? And you can see that man could only go so far in approaching God. The Gentiles could only go so far, right? They had a place where they had to stop. They couldn't go any further than that. The woman could only go so far um, toward the Holy of Holies. The men could only go so far, and finally the priests could only go so far. But they could never enter the sacred place where God was said to dwell upon the ark, except once, once a year. And only one person was able to enter that place. Now was the high priest, and the only way he could possibly enter that place was if he went through a, a variety of cleansing rituals before entering into that place. And once he got in there, he got the blood, he sprinkled it on there, and he got out of there as quickly as possible because he understood that the holiness of God was so great that men not only couldn't stand, but they would die instantly before the holiness of God. You remember Nadab and Abihu. They went and they offered strange incense or strange fire. What did the Lord do? Killed them on the spot. You remember Korah, Dathan, and Abiram who, tr who tried to function as a priest toward the Most High God. What happened to them? They were swallowed up in the ground. Remember that? When they tried to approach God. But now, this glorious truth is revealed through justification in Jesus Christ. There was no longer a separation. Remember what happened um, when Christ breathed his last breath on the cross? Matthew 27, 51. Behold, the veil of the temple was torn from the top to the bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks split. The veil hiding the Holy of Holies was torn from top to bottom, indicating that now man had access to God through the Lord Jesus Christ. No longer was God unapproachable, but through Christ we gain access. And not only do we gain access, but we can continually stand before God. Hebrews 4.16 Let us therefore draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and may find grace to help in time of need. Hebrews 10, 19-22. Since therefore, brethren, we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh. And since we have a great, great priest over the house of God, Listen, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. To the Jew, this was an astonishing truth, something they had never known. 
but God had revealed through Jesus Christ. It is not, our relationship with Christ is not one that is uh, sporadic, but it's continuous. It's not precarious, but it's secure. It's because we have full access to him and we are now standing on grace. We don't fall in and out of grace, like maybe some courtiers were, would come in and they would, if the king didn't like them, get out of my courtroom. It's not like that, or politicians where the, the people say we don't like him, so get him out of office. No, rather it's we stand in grace, and that grace is permanent. Isn't that a wonderful truth? Wonderful truth. So first is peace with God. Access to, second is access to God. Grace to stand. Third is we rejoice in hope, in the hope of the glory of God, even in suffering. And I'll talk about suffering later, but let's first talk about the hope of the glory of God. Verse 3, and not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance proven character, and proven character hope, and hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. And the latter part of verse 2, look there as well, to be, and we exult in the hope of the glory of God. Here, the translation of exult could be also boast or rejoice. So we rejoice or we boast in the glory of God. This is a good boasting, not a negative, prideful boasting, but a, a boasting that declares the glory of God. And what do they boast of? They boast of the, they boast in hope. They exult in hope. What does Paul mean here by hope? Paul means here by hope, not what we think of hope, like I hope that it doesn't rain today. Your hopes have been, um, they haven't come true. Um, or I hope that this or something else happens. It's like wishful thinking. This hope here is not um, that sense of hope, but the sense of certainty. Christian hope is not uncertain. It is a joyful, confident, expectation which rests on the promises of God. And if you look there, what is the object of this hope? The glory of God. What is the glory of God? Simply said, the glory of God is God fully revealed or fully displayed. Already God is, is, is revealing this glory. Um, Psalm 19.1 it says there that God's glory is continuously being revealed in the heavens and the earth. Already his glory has been uniquely manifested in the Lord Jesus Christ, John 1.14, and most notably at Christ's death and his resurrection. But one day, the full glory of God will be disclosed. And there's three nuances here that we need to understand about the glory of God when it be fully disclosed. First, Jesus Christ will appear in Mark 13, 26. It says, with great power and glory. Jesus will come again. This time he's not going to come as a lamb, but he's going to come as a lion. And he's going to come in glory. The glory of God will be revealed there. Secondly, we will not only see his glory, 
but we will be changed into it. God will be glorified in his holy people. 1 John 3, 2, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we shall be, but we know that when he appears, Jesus, we shall be like him, because we shall see him just as he is. Colossians 3, 4 says the same thing. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you too also will be re revealed with him in glory. So redeemed humanity, Christians, believers, who were created in the image and the glory of God, but now on this earth have fallen short of the glory of God, will come back to that full measure of the glory of God when Christ is revealed. It says in Romans 8, 17, we are heirs, heirs of God, fellow heirs of Christ, if we indeed suffer with him in order, why, that we may be glorified with him. Third aspect of the glory of God is that even the groaning creation will be liberated from this bondage of decay. Even creation will display the glory of God. Romans 8.21 That the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. All this is included in the glory of God. Christ appearing. We having uh, partaking in that glory as well as God is manifest through us and our bodies are glorified in the creation no longer being under the decay of sin will be released of that bondage and the glory of God will be revealed through creation as well. This is the vision. This is the hope. This is what we have as permanent, guaranteed. This is something we can look forward to. This is something that we can always put our hope in when everything else around us seems to crumble. This is the truth of the glory of God. And it is our vision of this future glory that's going to empower us in our daily present duties. John Piper in his, in his book, uh, Future grace, that is part of what he's talking about there. Looking forward to that aspect of guaranteed, secure truth that all things will be done to the glory of God in the end. And we need to know that every day of our lives. To summarize, the first three blessings of justification are we have peace with God, as a result of our past forgiveness. We have access and our standing in grace. That's our present privilege. And we rejoice in the hope of glory. And that's our future inheritance. See how it goes through the stream of time, past, present, and future. An addendum Paul gives here is in verses 3 through 5a. Because of this hope, he says, and not only this, but we can exult in our tribulations, or we can re rejoice 
in our sufferings. And here the, the term tribulations um, can be also translated sufferings. It's not really um, what we call the trials and tribulations of our life, like maybe there's aches or pains or fears or frustrations or um, disappointments in our life, but rather he's talking about more of uh, opposition or persecu persecution by a hostile world. Why? Because this word here is thalipsis in the Greek. This refers to a pressure. It's the pressure that is that was also used for squeezing out oil from olives or squeezing out wine or from grapes. Okay, and that is the tribulations he's talking about here. So the unique thing about the Christian is that you squeeze the Christian and what comes out? The oil of rejoicing. Unique. The wine of rejoicing. Um, and that is what Paul is saying here. Um, Jesus warned us that we're going to have trouble on this earth. We're going to suffer. Um, you may ask, why do we suffer? And why should we rejoice in our sufferings? Well, it's not masochism or pleasure through pain, but rather it's because we recognize that hope that is behind all of those sufferings. A couple things I want to point out here is that um, first, suffering leads to glory in the end. We have to realize that. Suffering leads to glory in the end. I, I read this verse already, but it says, We are fellow heirs with Christ if we indeed suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. We have the great privilege of sharing in the sufferings of Christ. And our end is the glory of God. So, secondly, if suffering leads to glory in the end, Paul also says here that maturity is the product of suffering as well in our present life. In the meantime, suffering leads to maturity. Suffering and trials bring maturity. See what it says there? Suffering or tribulation brings about perseverance and perseverance proven character and proven character hope. How, you may say, do trials mature us? Well, because tribulation works perseverance. Hupomone is the term that means patient endurance. When you go through trouble, you learn to endure. When you go through trouble again, you again learn to endure more. The more trouble, the more you learn to endure. And what happens? You push that, press that, and it produces proven character. This word proven character means to be approved. It's putting to test something for the purpose of approving it. It's like testing gold to get impurities out of it. Test silver to make sure it's pure. So what it's saying here is that when you go through trouble, it produces perseverance. And when you go through that trouble and you learn endurance, it builds proven character. And it helps us to mature. 
we hear the term sterling silver. That's much uh, like this, this term proven character here. Sterling character, meaning there's no flaws, there's no impurities. Um, and you see the trials or the pressures is what takes all those things out and makes you more and more pure. Because when we go through trials, and when we learn, when we go through those difficult times, we learn to trust in God. We learn to trust God in the stress. We learn to trust God in the pain. And we understand, again, that it is God who gives us that uh, hope, that grace to continue as we trust in him and it matures us. It's like spiritual weightlifting. It's, it builds our muscles. It raises our level of holiness. It sanctifies us. It purges us. James 1.12, blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Well, it looks like I'm running out of time here. So I'm going to skip over the last two and just tell you what they are. Um, Oh, I wish I could go over this. Um, maybe at another time I can go into greater detail the next time I preach. But the, the fourth one is the love of God in our hearts. The love of God in our hearts. That's from verses 5 through 8. And the last one is that we shall be saved from God's wrath. But I think the first three, I don't know about you, but that's enough truth for me to go on for a long time. We are no longer at war with God. We are no longer enemies of God. But we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. No longer is God unapproachable. No longer can we stand in fear and fear of death before God like the Jews did in the Old Testament but we have access to grace and on that grace we stand third we can rejoice in the hope of the glory of God even in our sufferings why because first of all we we understand that hope is a permanent thing hope in the glory of God it's guaranteed, it's secure, it will never um, not be. It's gonna happen, guys. And in the midst of that, we can also, through our suffering, understand that because that glory is our end, we're persevering and we understand through this passage, also through James, that these trials are developing us, developing us so that we can have character that is proven. So what does this mean for us as Christians? What does it mean for the unbeliever? Well, just a few things to consider, and I hope these will encourage those of you who have put your faith in Christ, those of you who have set Christ as Lord in your heart, that you will understand 
your desperate state beforehand, before Christ, and that now you have peace with God, that you have full access to God now, that you can approach His throne boldly. Take advantage of that. Approach Him. Come to Him. Understand that. And that you're standing on grace. You can't fall. You can't fall out of His grace. And that we have a hope that lasts. So when you're going through that difficult time, or even now, put your hope in the glory of God. And especially in the midst of suffering. What does that say to the unbeliever, though? And this is where the stakes are very high. For those of you who have not trusted in Christ, and I know James preached on the wrath of God just a few weeks ago. It was a very powerful, compelling message. And I kind of gave the flip side of that toward the believer, no longer that dangling over the pit of hell, like Jonathan Edwards is saying, but you've been placed on a secure place. But for the unbeliever, the truth of the Bible, the truth of the matter is that you are enemy of God. You are at war with God, and there is no way around it. Your destiny is the wrath of God, eternal punishment in hell. Secondly, you can't approach God. You can't approach God. You, God has closed the gate. You can't come into his courtroom. There's no way you can access him. You may pray, but his, his, those prayers are not heard. Third, uh, and I'm sure the unbeliever knows this, what, what hope is there? What security is there if there is no hope in God? There is none. And if you're honest with yourself, you'll realize that as well. So today, if you want to find the fruits of justification, become a child of God. Understand the richness and the fullness it is to be in the presence of God, no longer under wrath, no longer under condemnation. Have eternal life guaranteed, assurance of salvation. Know that God is on your side. You're standing upon the work that he's done and nothing that you can do in your own self. And come to Jesus Christ. It's a matter of uh, repenting of your sins and committing your life to the Lordship of Christ, saying, I want Christ to be my king. So that is the message of, of Romans 5. Uh, the last two points were incredible as well. If you may, maybe have a chance to study that in the future, um, but if you want to go home and study that on your own, the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit. It's, it's a wonderful subjective truth that there's an inward assurance that the Holy Spirit gives and he reminds us that God loves you. And the last one is the wrath of God, which I've already pointed out.
So in the end, we can have security. There is something secure. And probably many of you know this, but Paul needed to remind it to the Romans. And today we have the Word of God, and hopefully the Holy Spirit has reminded you of so great a salvation that is secure in Christ Jesus. Let's pray.